Well, our sermon this morning comes from Luke 17. Luke 17, we'll begin in verse 1. Uh, this morning, you'll find that on page 867 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would invite you to take that Bible there in that pew rack uh, this morning. Uh, you take that home with you and read that. That would be a wonderful blessing to us to give that to you. So Luke 17, verse 1. I, as you're finding your way there, I do want to let you know how thankful that uh, both my brother Dave and I were for your prayers while we spent about 10 days uh, serving the Lord in, in Ghana. Uh, it was an incredibly productive and encouraging week. And I know uh, we are planning, God willing, next week to give you an update as to what the Lord is doing there in this West African nation. But let me just, uh, a lot of you were telling me this morning, man, I hope you're going to talk about Ghana. And um, so let me just, one event I want to let you know about, it was on Wednesday morning, uh, Dave and I went to a, um, a high school there to their worship service. And maybe I shouldn't tell you this because it was probably the most fun preaching I have had in years. Right. Um, to 200 high school students. And um, in fact, the sermon I preached to them, it'll be interesting to see how you respond to it next week, because I just preached to them the same message I'll preach to you next Sunday, God willing. Now, when I was preaching it to them, however, um, and we, we, they, you know, we were considering the work of Jesus, they couldn't stop cheering and, and, and clapping and celebrating. And so I talked to him about Jesus' compassion. And, and the students would begin to shout and clap their hands. And then I would talk to them about Jesus' power. And, and they would like stand up and start hugging each other as if they, they've never heard these truths before and are so amazed at the power of Jesus Christ. And when I spoke to them about Jesus' mercy for salvation, they, they would raise their hands and, and, and declare their prayer. In fact, it, there were so many interruptions. It was actually hard to preach. Um, they're constantly cheering and shouting. And uh, it was, of course, a great encouragement to my soul. Man, I'm excited to see what's going to happen next week when you hear the same message as I gave to them. Um, amen. All right, there we go. Fire up. That's... Um, I'm also excited that, by God's grace, uh, there's a team headed to Ghana in June. I know another one is gathering to work amongst the children there in August. And um, I, I delight what God is doing through this little church, Hamilton Baptist Church, in this faraway land. And it is a great honor to be part of that. So, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. And he said to his disciples... Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. And it would obey you. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. And we ask that you would give us a heart 
to rejoice in it and a mind to understand it. For your glory and for our gain, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the year 1480 when a man named Louis, uh, Louis of Orleans, a French duke, risked everything, his title, his land, even his freedom, as he joined the fo- forces opposing the French monarchy. Well, Louis and his allies did not succeed. They were defeated, and Louis of Orleans was bound and thrown into a medieval French dungeon. And through coming years, a number of circumstances, and to his enemy's great dismay, Louis was not only released from that bondage, but he would eventually become crowned Louis Twelfth, the King of France. The story has been told about Louis that as he ascended to his throne, his advisors counseled him that he needs to take care of all those who opposed him early on. He needs to take revenge upon those who imprisoned him. And so Louis got a scroll and he wrote down the names of every man who opposed him. And by each name in red ink, he wrote a cross. Well, the word of the king's bloodlust had, had begun to circulate and causing many of the French nobility to fear for their lives and they begin to, to run from their estates and manors to foreign countries. When it became known to Louis that people were fleeing the country because of this list, he clarified the purpose of it, explaining, the cross which I drew besides each name was not a sign of punishment, but a pledge of forgiveness extended for the sake of the crucified Savior, who upon his cross forgave his enemies. A pledge of forgiveness. How rare is it today to have a a ruler of a nation to rejoice in forgiveness rather than retribution? It seems to be far more common when those who lead us, whether they are are slighted in the media or they are imprisoned in a dungeon to seek revenge, not to offer grace. I think it's why this nation has become so encouraged and even startled when when the families of those who were brutally murdered by Dylan Roof and Emmanuel AME Church declare publicly and repeatedly that they have forgiven the man who murdered in cold blood their father or mother, sister or brother, leaving the rest of us asking, Where do you find that strength to forgive such sin? Well, it's here Jesus, he's marching on to Jerusalem in our study of Luke's gospel to to deal with sin, isn't he? And as he is himself preparing to deal with our sin, he begins to counsel you and I and those who follow him how we must deal with those who sin around us. But before addressing other people's sin, he deals with our own, beginning by explaining that we must not cause other people to sin. The first truth I think we see from Jesus is that we should not cause sin. We see in verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, temptations are sure to come. So their temptation is coming. You should be aware of this by now, shouldn't you? It is, a, it is certain, it's a sure thing that temptations in this world are here as long as the world is the way that it is. And that you and I are bombarded every day with temptations. Wherever we go and, and everywhere we look and everyone we meet, temptation is soon to follow. Pastor Mark Dever says that this world is a moral red-like district for Christians. 
with temptations beckoning at every turn. Of course, the temptations, by the way, don't just come from the world, from outside of us. There's plenty wrong within us to tempt us into sin and rebellion from God. Temptations, as the Lord says, are coming. But you be sure to not be the one from whom they come. You see what he says? Verse 1. Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better, verse 2, for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Temptations are coming, just don't be the one who brings them. Jesus says, now a millstone is a very large stone that would be rotated by a harnessed donkey in order to crush grain or olives. In other words, a millstone makes a very poor life jacket. It's very, very heavy. And Jesus says that the, the woe that comes to the one who tempts others into sin is not a millstone tied around your neck and tossed into the sea. The woe is worse than that. He says it would be better for you to be tossed into the ocean with a millstone around your neck than to, to lead others into sin. You see, according to Jesus, listen, sin is no joke. You, you feel the sobriety and the severity that, that Jesus is saying terrible judgment awaits those who do not repent of the aid they lend to the devil and tempt God's little ones into sin. I like how he puts it there at the end of verse 2. He refers to us as little ones. He's not referring, I don't think, the children. This, I believe, will be clear when we get to Luke 18. He's referring to God's children of any age. That believers who trust in God as their father with a childlike faith are to God like his little ones. And as a father, God is very protective of his children. Could you imagine if someone came into your home and and went into your child's bedroom and began to convince them that they should dishonor you as their parent or, or should rebel against you? I mean, how would you feel about that person in your house coming to, to breed rebellion and sin in your home? Well, just multiply how you would feel about that by about 10,000 maybe. And that's how our father feels about those who tempt his kids. I once saw years ago a, a fictional blog post of a, of, a, of a conversation that a father was pretending to have with a young man who wanted to date his daughter. He said to this fictional man, my daughter's heart is a fragile thing. If you play with hers, I will show you yours. So you bring my kids into rebellion, you will wish you had cast yourself into the sea wearing a millstone. God said. That's, of course, a warning to this world, isn't it? It's a warning, I think, to the pop stars and the professional athletes and the Hollywood actors and the university professors and the prosperity preachers. It's a warning to them. But we may think, well, okay, I'm not any of those things. In fact, I'm a Christian. I've been forgiven. So this whole nasty teaching about millstones and drowning is not for me. Now, of course, I would say if you are a Christian and you tempt other Christians into sin, God's grace by the shed blood of Jesus will cover those sins too. However, can we at least hear the heart of our God here? 
Do you, can you hear how he's grieved over these temptations? He's even angered by them. We must therefore watch how we influence other people. We must beware of leading other people into error and to sin and to self-righteous pride. I was startled to read that Pastor Kent Hughes, when he gathers with other pastors, occasionally prays with them, saying, Lord, if one of us here is headed for adultery, take him home now. And Pastor Kent Hughes says the other pastors all nod in agreement. And Father, we are going to go down that road of sin and bring other people with us. It would be better if we died and went to heaven than committed these sins. In fact, perhaps this is why Jesus says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to how you influence others. My brothers and sisters in Christ, what do you encourage with your laughter? What do you celebrate with your praise? What, what do you commend with your money? What do you exalt with your friends? Beware of leading others into sin, especially those who may be in a dating relationship. Beware of the influence you have on those with whom you are in a romantic relationship. Very easy to lead others into sin in that situation. Jesus is calling for us to stop and to think. He says, pay attention to yourself. Think. And not, by the way, just about our lives, but the lives of those who are, are in our faith family. For he teaches us, secondly, that we should not ignore sin. So don't cause sin, but also don't ignore sin. We see this in verse 3, as when he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So don't cause others to sin, but when they do, you need to come and help them. Because you, just like the Father, love them. Now, rebuking people is not fun. We do not rebuke because we find it enjoyable. We do so because as God has taught us, we consider sin to be serious. It'd be like if you were in a passenger seat this afternoon and someone's driving, you're driving down the road and they're about to hit a tree. You speak up, don't you? I love you. Watch out. Right? We don't want you to hit this tree. I don't want to be hit by this tree. We speak up because we love them. To allow someone to keep on sinning, I tell you, according to Scripture, is an act of hatred. You can't allow those you love to continue to hurt themselves and those around them. Now, some of you say, well, I have no problem rebuking. I I just tell it like it is. I'm no coward. But I wonder, does your rebuke ever lead to reconciliation? Does it ever lead to repentance? Because if it doesn't, your real aim may not to be correcting someone. Your real aim may be just this selfish desire to punish others. Still, there's others who say, you know, I'm real forgiving. And so I, I, I just kind of, I just absorb it. I keep it to myself. Well, your real aim may not because you love them. It may be because you love yourself. And that's just simply a selfish pursuit of your own ease and comfort at the expense of your brother who's in sin. Psalm 141 verse 5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. This is, I think, one of the great reasons to join a church, a community of believers that that we, we do not pursue Christ and Christ-likeness in isolation, but with the help of one another. This is why I'm excited for these ministries that are coming up, the Women to Women and the Men's Discipleship Initiative. That this is why I think it's so important that when you join this church, you covenant together. 
You know, every member of this church has made a vow. We will humbly and gently confront one another. We will willingly receive correction from one another. And when and I start the new members class next week, um, uh, one of the things I will explain to the new members, if you do not want to be rebuked for sin, if you want just to be left alone, then do not join this church. This is not a place to be left alone. Right? If you join, you enter into a covenant and you say, listen, if you see me walking away from Jesus, please, out of your love for me, will you help me? Will you let me know? And when we are rebuked, we should then ask God, Lord, let me hear what this brother is saying to me. Let me find the truth in it. Now, we are not, of course, the police. It's not a bunch of speed traps and we're jumping out and saying, I got you. Right? We're, we're, not, we're not keeping account of minor issues, but we are lovingly entering into re- open relationships with one another and helping each other gently, not judgmentally, humbly, not proudly, affectionately, not harshly, prayerfully, not rashly, overcome the sin in our lives. And if you're anything like me, you have sin in your life. And we need the help of others. Don't ignore sin, Jesus teaches us. Then, Thirdly, and we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning considering that when someone does sin against us, we are to forgive sin. Number three, forgive sin. Now, you may think, oh, okay, all this that we're kind of talking about, don't tempt others and you know, rebuke others and forgive others. You think, okay, this is kind of Christianity 101. It's very basic. Okay, I got it. Well, I want you to understand that when Jesus is done teaching this to his disciples, His disciples come to Jesus and they say, we can't do that. This is weighty. In fact, I would suggest to you that when you forgive someone, listen, forgiveness requires the victim of a sin to suffer more. Forgiveness is a form of self-inflicted suffering. That if you forgive someone, it will cost you. It will hurt you. In fact, we need to find out, okay, so what is forgiveness? Well, let me begin by explaining what it's not. I, I think there's a lot of confusion about this. Forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin, right? Forgiveness is not feeling good about that which is evil, right? God gets angry at sin. We get angry at sin. Forgiveness is, saying, is not saying, okay, I won't be angry at sin. No, I think sin is an appropriate thing to be angry at. Moreover, forgiveness is not being is not the absence of pain over sin. It's not the absence of grief. Sometimes we don't feel angry when someone sins against us. We're hurt. Well, please understand, you can forgive and still feel hurt. I don't, I don't know, uh, husbands, if you ever had this experience where you've done something stupid, uh, you sin against your wife, and you go to your wife and you say, I'm, I'm sorry, honey. And she says, okay, I, I forgive you. And then you say, well, why are, you, why are you still sad, right? Well, she's still sad because it hurt, right? You hurt her. That's why she's sad. Forgiveness does not mean magic bullet, okay? I'm no longer feeling grief and pain over this sin. Third, forgiveness is not diminishing sin. It's not saying when someone says, you know, I'm sorry I did this. We have this temptation to say, oh, it's okay. It's not a big deal. A lot of times it is a big deal. So big that Christ died for it. And we shouldn't diminish sin in forgiveness. We should say, okay, I'm glad you are sorry because it really hurt me. In fact, it was such a big deal that the Savior died for it, but I forgive you. Forgiveness, moreover, is not the absence of consequences. Right? 
Just because you're forgiven does not mean you, you don't face consequences to your sin. So my kids will sin against me. They'll dishonor mommy, for instance, or maybe tell a lie. And, and daddy will, will pull them aside and talk to them about that. And they'll say, I'm sorry. And daddy will say, I forgive you. Now bend over. Right? Now, now receive your discipline. Uh, I, I, I forgive you, but there remain consequences for that sin. We still reap what we sow. Now, sometimes the consequences can be mitigated. And I think that takes a great deal of wisdom at times. But, but one consequence that, that always follows sin is a lack of trust, isn't it? You, just because you forgive someone doesn't, doesn't... Listen, trust and forgiveness, they don't go hand in hand. Forgiveness comes first. Trust follows sometimes later. That's what forgiveness is not. So what is it? And the best way in which I understand forgiveness has been most helpful to me is to understand forgiveness is a surrender of your right to repayment. If, if you want to know how, the, how I can best understand forgiveness, forgiveness is a surrender of your right to repayment. In fact, this word forgive is a very interesting word. I, I actually had a page of a sermon just talking about this word because it's almost never translated forgive. Uh, one place it's used is in Matthew 18 where where uh, a master o- was, was owed 10,000 talents and, and he forgave the sin. It usually means let it be in the Greek. And, and so the master says, okay, you owe me 10,000 talents. I, I forgive your sin, right? I'm, excuse me, I forgive your debt. He surrendered his right to repayment. He said, I'm not going to make you pay for this. I'm not going to hold this debt against you. Now, who's going to pay the debt? Because the 10,000 talents just doesn't vanish, right? Who pays it? It's the one who forgives, right? Which is why forgiveness is hard. Because not only do you relinquish your right for repayment or justice, that you actually have to pay the debt yourself. Forgiveness is a form of suffering. It is hard to forgive. You release them from the debt, but that doesn't, debt doesn't pay, disappear. You have to pay it. Right? When someone sins against you, they hurt you. It was Tim Keller who's helped me a lot in this idea who says, when people wrong you, they also always rob you. Whenever you're wronged, you're also robbed. You're robbed of opportunities. You're robbed of happiness. You're robbed of ease. You're robbed of your reputation. There is a debt. And you could, okay, so when sins against me, I can make them pay it back. And we make people pay the debt back in many different ways. We, we might be mean to them. We might control them. We might shame them. We might ignore them. We might gossip about them, right? We, we, might, we might destroy their reputation under the guise of a warning. You know, you should really know this about so-and-so, right? We're making them pay back, right? We're seeking after justice. We could constantly bring it up. We could throw it in their face over and over again, make them know how much they're hurt. What's most common, I think, when we don't forgive is we root against people. We kind of hope that they get theirs, right? And we, we think about what they did to us, and we just kind of hope that the, this kind of comes back on top of them. And when it happens, we celebrate, right? You feel good about something bad happening to them. And you do so because you're being repaid, right? But to, to forgive is to release them of that debt. That's hard. To, it's to assume the debt. In fact, one way in which you can forgive is, is you could be nice to them which is costly. That's hard to do. You could, you could praise them, which is costly. You could pray for those who've sinned against you. That's costly. And you know what? The more 
What you're doing is you're paying on that debt that they owe you. And the more you pay on that debt, you know what happens? The debt decreases, right? Until it's finally paid and your heart begins to follow, right? You give forgiveness first and then you eventually start to feel it. And yet it is difficult. It is costly. In fact, when I think about forgiveness, the question that comes to my mind is, is how can we do it? How can we make forgiveness easier, right? And, and, and I, I don't think forgiveness will ever be pain-free, but the way to make forgiveness easier, I think, like pretty much every aspect of obedience in our Christian life, is to remember the gospel. How can we forgive? You, you need, listen, you need to remember who you are. You are a sinner, right? When someone sins against you, it is very helpful to remember that they're not in this class of people and you're in this class of people over here. No, you're also a sinner. And I, I, you won't be able to forgive anyone if, as long as you feel superior to them. You need to bring yourself down and remind yourself who you are. And I think Jesus is trying to help us do that in this parable of the unworthy servant. Look in verse 7. And we'll spend the bulk of our time working through this passage next week, God willing. But look what he says. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Verse 8. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Then he concludes, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say... We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Jesus says, imagine you're a master. And you have a servant. And he's out. I mean, he's working. He's taking care of the sheep all day long. It's hot. It's sweaty. And and he he takes care of the sheep. And he he comes in at dinner time. And Jesus says, okay, you master, do you look at your servant and say, wow. Man, that was really good shepherding out there. I was watching. And I'm really impressed. In fact, why don't you sit down at the table and I'll, I'll put the apron on and I'll run to the kitchen and I'll make you something for dinner. And Jesus says, no, no, of course you don't do that. Servants don't become masters because they do their duty, right? Okay, so Jesus says, imagine, imagine you're the master. You don't do this as a servant. And then verse 10, you see, he flips it. He says, and verse 10, You're not the master. You're the servant. You're not the guy sitting at the table. You're the guy who's who's out in the field working. and, and, And you need Jesus saying to remember who you are. Even if you've done all I've commanded you, what you get to say is, I'm an unworthy servant who's only done my duty. That's who you are. He is bringing us down. One of the great problems with liberal Christianity is this, with a high view of humanity, it exalts humans and it makes forgiveness incredibly hard because it fills us with pride. And as long as we feel superior to other people, we won't forgive. We need to remember who we are and then we need to remember who they are. We need to bring ourselves down and bring them up. Jesus says, verse 3, if your brother causes you to sin, this is my brother. This man is in the Christian family. And even if he's not your brother, he's still made in God's image. He's still endowed with dignity and value and worth. You need to remember who they are. Because when we're sinned against, we don't care who they are. We just care what they did to us. Right? They lie to you. And what do we think? They're 
a liar, right? We lie. Well, it's complicated, right? You know, the circumstances. What do you mean to talk about? Right? But you look at what they did and you, you degrade them to, from, from who they are to simply what they have done against you. And I'll tell you, you want to forgive people, you have to, in your heart, bring yourself down and bring them up. As one has said, forgiveness flounders when I exclude the enemy from the community of humanity and exclude myself from the community of sinners. That's how to forgive. Now, now there may be some here, and I, I've been praying for you if, if you're feeling like this, that you still think, no, I can't do it. Someone has hurt you so bad, has sinned against you so greatly, that forgiveness is too costly. It's too painful. I remember early in my pastoral ministry, uh, I was talking to this young lady, and she says, uh, she said, point out blank, I will not forgive that person. And God understands. God doesn't expect them to. They've hurt me so bad. And I, I believe there are people like that who are, who are hurt so bad and forgiveness costs too much that it, it's, it's too painful. And forgiveness is painful. There's no doubt about it, just as we've established. Forgiveness costs. But please understand, not forgiving is also painful. Right? You're going to suffer either way. You, get, you just get to choose which kind of suffering you have. You could choose a suffering that leads to healing and freedom, or you can choose a suffering that leads to hardness and enslavement. Right? A very helpful verse that many of you are aware of is Hebrews 12 and verse 15, where the writer of Hebrews says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So the Bible is telling us in Hebrews, watch out when you're wronged. Because if you don't forgive, you know what's going to happen? That, that, that unforgiveness is going to take you places you do not want to go. In fact, it says it will, it will defile you. It will hide itself at first. It will just masquerade as, I want the truth. Right? But, it, but eventually it's going to distort you. It's going to defile you. You'll start to root against them. You'll start to feel good when they fail. Right? And you are becoming, according to the Bible, defiled. You will, if you're unwilling to forgive, my brothers and sisters, you will find yourself to be a less joyful person. You will find yourself afraid to trust others. You will find that you are easily angered or easily offended. I mean, it will lead to all sorts of sin. His interesting, uh, interesting story was told about Tolstoy, the, the great Christian author who wrote War and Peace. Um, he was married, I believe, close to 30 to a woman named Sonia. And before he married her, he wanted Sonia to know who he truly was. And so he let her read his diary. Now, Tolstoy, before he married Sonia, and in his diary recorded previous sexual activity. And he knew it. I mean, he wanted her to know everything about him. And so she read his diary, and they went on and got married and Married for, I think, close to 50 years. Um, Tolstoy died, and when Sonia was 80 years old, she was writing in her own journal this time, full of bitterness about her husband's past sexual activity. That was 60 years ago. Her biographer wrote, For half a century, jealousy and forgiveness blinded her, and in the process destroyed all love for her husband. Listen, if you don't forgive, you're not only sinning, you're hurting yourself. 
you are inflicting pain upon yourself. Perhaps this is why Jesus says in verse 3, watch out. You know, that watch, pay careful attention to yourself, verse 3. I don't know if that's concluding his thoughts in verse 2, don't cause others to sin. Or if he's saying, pay careful attention to yourself to introduce this teaching on forgiveness. You have to forgive. Pay attention to yourself. When you're sinned against, you better watch yourself, Jesus might be saying for us. I'm not sure which way it goes, but it certainly works if he's talking about forgiveness. Because when we're sinned against, we don't watch ourselves, we watch them. Why did you do that? How can you do that to me? And Jesus says, listen, when you're sinned against, you should immediately focus upon your own heart and whether you're willing to forgive. Of course, the question rises, well, what if they don't repent? Right? You ever heard that question? So I know I'm supposed to forgive, but it says, if they repent, I forgive. So what if they don't repent? Should I forgive them? Now, this is a difficult question, and, and if you ask me tomorrow, I may give you a different answer. Um, in fact, my whole opinion on this changed about six months ago, and it was partly because of studying this passage and uh, studying Luke 15. And so what I'll tell you today is I would say, listen, if they do not repent, you should forgive. Now, f- forgiveness is not reconciliation. Right? Those are two. Reconciliation is the fruit of forgiveness. It follows forgiveness, but it is not forgiveness. Mark 11.25 says, Jesus says, if you're praying and you have something against someone, what does it say? Forgive them. Not go talk to them about it. Not go work it out. Not seek their repentance. No, you forgive them in your heart and then you go seek that reconciliation. And to be reconciled, they need to repent, right? And I think we see this in Luke 15. When does the father forgive the prodigal son? I think he must have forgiven him long before he returned long before he repented. Otherwise, he would have stayed on the porch and said, okay, what does this boy have to say? Right? But no, he runs out to him with his heart full of forgiveness. And it's only when the boy repents, right, and comes home that there can be reconciliation. But forgiveness comes even without, I believe, repentance. Of course, that raises the question, okay, well then when are we supposed to do it? And Jesus tells us when to forgive in verse 4. Because if this is not hard enough, We're just going to up the ante a little bit. And he says, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Right? So if someone, I mean, come on, they sin against you seven times in a day and they seven times come say, I repent. We, we, We played this scenario out in family worship last night. And it got really ridiculous at like time number five. I'm sorry I lied to you for the fifth time today. Will you please forgive me? right? Listen, if you sin against me seven times in a day and come to me seven times and say, I repent, you and I are going to have a conversation about what repentance is, right? Because you're not doing it right, okay? It's absurd, which is exactly Jesus' point. The genuineness of their repentance is for God to deal with. Your responsibility is to forgive them. Seven times? Why seven? Why not five? How about nine? Well, seven symbolizes, in the Hebrew mind, perfection. I don't know why, but it does. And, and you look, Psalm 12, verse 6, the, word of, the, word of the, Lord are, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. Not eight times, not a hundred times. Seven is the idea of completion. Psalm 119, verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Is he keeping count? He's saying, okay, I praise God five times today. I got two more praises to do today. 
No, he's saying I praise you all the time. So when Jesus says, forgive someone seven times a day, we don't say, okay, that was the sixth time. There's about four more hours today. You only get one more forgiveness. You better use it wisely, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying keep count. He's asking far more than forgiving someone seven times in a day. He's saying your forgiveness needs to be complete and perfect. He is saying, in effect, if a person could wrong you as completely as one person can wrong another person, you must forgive him. And if you think that's hard, you're not alone. Because look how the apostles respond in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Right? Rebuke. Forgive, forgive, and forgive, and forgive, and forgive. God help us, they say. Notice, by the way, they understand faith as not something they muster, but as God's gift to them. Even as our brother Mark reminded us from Hebrews this morning that God is both the author and perfecter of our faith. It is the faith that He has given to us. And they say, okay, will you now fix our faith? Jesus' response to them is stunning and confusing. Verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, which is small, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. They come to Jesus and say, We need more faith. Jesus says, No, you don't. You don't need more faith. The point is not how much faith you have. The point is who you have the faith in. And if you had enough faith in me, right? All you need in, of faith in me is, is faith the size of a mustard seed. Even the smallest faith in God, you can do what God calls you to do. And so stop looking at the task in front of you. Stop looking at the hurt which you've experienced and start, Jesus Put your eyes on me. Put your faith in me. And if you had faith so small, you could say to this mulberry tree, which I understand has this massive root system, lives for 600 years, very hard to move. Jesus says you could plant it, plant it in the sea. That's even harder, right? What's he saying? The point is not your faith gives you superpowers. The point is not what Joyce Meyer would tell you. Exercise your faith over and over and over again and eventually you you can do incredible things. That is not Jesus' point. The point is He is giving us a picture of something impossible like a camel going through an eye of a needle which you will say in Luke 18 like telling us to forgive seven times over and over and over and you think, well God, that is impossible. Forgive and forgive and forgive. How can I do that? And Jesus says, all you need to do is trust in Me. Put your faith in me. In fact, this might be the smartest thing the apostles ever said. Even though Jesus said no to their their prayer request. Because they didn't say, God, increase our love or increase our tolerance or increase our compassion. They said, if we are to forgive like this, we need more faith. That's what we need to forgive. Is an understanding and a trust and who Jesus is. And if you have the smallest appreciation of who Jesus is and what He has done, you can do the impossible. Let me ask you, was Jesus sinned against? Yeah. Does He know the pain of betrayal like maybe you do? Mm-hmm. Is He abandoned by those close to Him? Yeah. Was He lied to? Was He gossiped about? Was He mistreated? Was His reputation smeared? Was he robbed from? Was he emotionally abused? Physically abused? Spiritually abused? Yeah. Who did that? 
I didn't. I do it all the time. And so do you. We sin against him. We sin against him. And how does he respond? Does he look at you and say, you need to pay this debt? No. He pays it for you. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Was that forgiveness of you costly? Unimaginably so. Where can I find the power to forgive those who hurt me? I look by faith at the cross and I will find freedom and power and grace to give to others. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I'll tell you, just a little mustard seed of faith in Christ will empower you to forgive those who have sinned against you. In fact, I find it interesting, this parable of the unworthy servant there in verses 7-10, through 10, and the point Jesus tells us is, listen, masters never serve the servants. The servant comes in, he doesn't get up and start serving the servant. Masters don't serve the servants except once. There's a master who had a bunch of servants who did not do all that they were commanded. In fact, we're doing a very poor job at it. And they come in, and you know what that master did? He said, sit at the table. And let me rise and let me serve you. That's what Jesus did for me and for you. You want to be long-suffering? You, by faith, need to see a king serving you. You want to forgive people their little debts? You, by faith, have to see him paying your great debt. You want to stop being the judge of other people? You will do so when you, by faith, see the judge of all the universe rise from his judgment seat and stand trial as one accused, found guilty, and in our place condemned to death for you. The judge was judged for you. How then, my friends, can you and I take the judgment seat against others? You just need a little faith, and you will forgive. In fact, just a little faith not only will give you power to forgive, it will let you access the forgiveness in which Jesus offers you. You understand that Christianity alone is the only religion that says our only hope is forgiveness. Buddhism is all about karma, and it just comes around, and it's going to... You do this bad, and it is going to come around and get you. Islam is all about retribution. Forgiveness is about, we are sinners... Please have mercy on us. Forgive us. And when you experience the forgiveness of God, you will have the power to begin to forgive others. I hope everyone here in this room have bowed their knee to King Jesus, saying, Lord Jesus, forgive me. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There was once a man who lived in America who experienced great forgiveness. He was a a man who knew intimately both Thomas Jefferson, our third president, and Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president. It was said of this man, his compromises in the 1820s and in the 1850s kept this nation together until the northern states could grow in strength to defeat militarily the southern states, which sought to succeed with human slavery in tow. He happened to be the son of a Baptist pastor as well. His name was Henry Clay. The latter part of Henry Clay's life, when he retired from the public life, he had enormous debt because of his son's mishandling of his business. And Clay thought he would have to sell the family estate, Ashland, in Lexington, Kentucky. Thought he might receive $70,000 in order to settle this debt. 
but a number of prominent businessmen and merchants found out about his debt and, and they decided to help, but they didn't want to do so publicly. They didn't want to walk up to Clay and hand him a wad of cash. And so they just discreetly raised $25,750, which in today's currency is about a half a million. And they simply went into the bank and paid the debt, saying nothing about it. One day, Clay went into the bank to service the debt, just pay a little on it. And the cashier said to him, there's nothing here against you, whatever, Mr. Clay. What do you mean? replied the astonished statesman. What I mean, sir, is that your friends have paid every dollar that you owed. Clay burst into tears in the midst of that bank, saying, did any man ever have such friends? I do. His name is Jesus. And he forgave a debt far greater than what Clay owed to that bank. Do you understand that forgiveness? If you do, it will make you forgiving. Are you forgiving? Are you an agent of forgiveness in your home? At your work? Do you have bitterness in your heart? Is there someone that you're just holding on to and it's just eating away at you? Are you willing to forgive and to forgive and to forgive? Until you want to find strength to do so, you cast your eyes upon Christ who has given up everything to forgive you. In fact, let's do so even now, shouldn't we? So we take the supper meal that God would remind us not only of the forgiveness in which we have secured through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but he would remind us of the great cost that Jesus paid for us. And so, my brothers and sisters, I would ask you to take a moment of silent reflection, preparing your hearts to remember our Lord's death. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to be forgiving people, for we have been forgiven so much at such great cost. We want, our, we want the impact of your forgiveness upon our life to make our forgiveness of others seem absurd to this world. And so I pray even now as we take this time to focus upon the work of Jesus for our forgiveness, that it would create in us this overwhelming thankfulness and joy that would flow out of us into the lives of others who might sin against us. That we would be quick to absorb their debt as you have absorbed ours. So work in our hearts, even now we pray in Christ's name. Amen.